right. Hey guys. I want to start with a quick poll this morning. How many guys, uh, how many of you guys know what number you are on the Enneagram? Just quick show of hands. Well, just look around real quick. Look around. That's almost everybody. Myers-Briggs, anybody back there? Myers-Briggs. Yeah, this is, this is a thing. Uh, as a culture, for some reason, we love personality assessments. Uh, the Enneagram in particular has blown up in recent years. There is no shortage of books, uh, Instagram feeds, YouTube videos that all want to help you figure out who you are. And, and don't get me wrong here, I, I found uh, many of these things to be helpful. My question, though, this morning is, why are we so enamored with them? Like, what is it about this that is so fascinating to us? Well, the reality is, is that we live in a culture that is obsessed with identity. And more so than probably any other point in human history, you can, in a sense, make your identity whatever you want it to be. And even if you can't actualize your identity or the identity you want in the quote-unquote real world, well, no worries, because the internet is waiting with open arms, right? Uh, and there, you can be whoever you want to be. Uh, and that's not like a social media phenomenon either, by the way. Uh, that's something that's been present from the earliest days of the Internet. Like if you go back to like the chat room days of the Internet, I mean, you could be whoever you wanted to be. Uh, it even spawned new vocabulary, like the term catfishing, right, is, is like a word to describe pretending to be somebody that you're not and duping somebody online. Uh, this also in some ways is the promise of the so-called metaverse, right, this idea that I can sort of create my identity and then I can quote-unquote live inside this virtual space. The problem with all this self-creation, though, is that no matter how perfectly you curate your identity, you are still you. You are still inherently flawed. Uh, as the old adage goes, wherever you go, there you are, right? It's very true. And one of the major sources of anxiety for people here in the West is not only that we are trying to define ourselves, but also that we need other people to see and affirm the identity we are creating for ourselves. You notice this? In order for this identity that I've created to somehow be valid, I need somebody else to see it and affirm it. Which is just dripping with irony, because on one hand, I'm doing this very self-focused and self-determining thing of making my identity whatever I want it to be, but then I need you to recognize my new identity in order for it to somehow be real. I can say that I'm a Labrador retriever now, but unless another person, another human person sees me and says, yes, Weston is now a Labrador retriever, and he's a good boy, right? <laughs> Unless that happens, then my identity is not valid, right? And I'm stuck in like this existential crisis. Who am I? That's the world we're living in right now. But, but here's some incredible news. You are this way on purpose. We are this way on purpose. Your soul is looking for its home. 
Your soul is looking for its home. And Jesus Christ has come so that your soul might find its true home in him. As St. Augustine famously said, God, you have made us for yourself. You've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find their rest in you. But it will not be found in some identity that you have crafted for yourself, no matter how carefully you have crafted it. Quite to the contrary, it will actually be found in you abandoning your pursuit of self-creation and self-identification by taking on the identity of Christ. Notice, not just by identifying with Jesus... Or not just associating yourself with Jesus, but by taking on the identity of Jesus. Not by curating an identity and graciously including Jesus as a part of it, but by starting down the road of becoming like Jesus. This is what we mean when we talk about discipleship, by the way. It is apprenticeship to Jesus. In apprenticeship, the student becomes ultimately the master. Like that's in, in if you, any of the trades. Like if you're learning to be a welder and you apprentice to a master welder, eventually, ideally, you become a master welder. And you take apprentices underneath you. This is the basic discipleship model of Jesus. But notice this is not adding him to your identity, right? But taking on his identity as your own. Today's message is all about how we begin down that road. Turn with me this morning to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we're going to read the first 19 verses of this chapter. There's a lot here, but we're going to zoom in in particular on one piece. John 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of, the, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why this, ointment, why, this ointment, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. 
But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. A lot going on here today. What I really want to zoom in on this morning is the story of Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha are two sisters, two very different people. I think the gospel writers present them to us as very different people personality-wise, but they're not just different because Martha is like a one and Mary's maybe like a four, right, or something like that. No, no, no. Their difference is seen in how they interact with Jesus. Now, this is not the only time we meet them in the Gospels, by the way. The first time is actually in Luke 10. Let me read this to us real quick. Luke 10, these are verses 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So did you notice in, in both of those stories, Martha is running around serving everyone. Mary, however, is where? At the feet of Jesus. In both of these accounts, Mary is at the feet of Jesus. And in both of these stories, Jesus commends Mary for being at his feet. And in particular, he says, she has chosen the good portion. As opposed to Martha's hurriedness and anxiety and worriedness. When we're starting down the road of, uh, when we were starting down the road of church planning, you know, now four plus years ago, uh, we wrote this list of what we call paradigm shifts. Uh, it was sort of like this little manifesto for us. And these were ways we wanted this church to be different from things we had been a part of in the past. And this was one of the first things we developed for Covenant Shreveport on our very first uh, vision night that we had. It was just a night where a bunch of people came together and we talked about what could be, what we felt like the Lord had called us to do. This was what we talked about. We talked about these 10 paradigm shifts that we had developed. And um, if you've been in our membership class at any point in time, you've heard these before. But amazingly, all of these things have continued to be significant for us. There are a lot of things we talked about early on in the beginning uh, that have fallen by the wayside. But, but these in particular have really stuck for us. And the last one on the list is this. Christianity is a way of life. Christianity is a way of life. And our thought behind that paradigm shift was that Christianity is not just an addition, and it's not just a hobby, and it's not just an event I attend or something I participate in, but it's, but it's actually something, it's really a person that I am seeking to restructure my life around, uh, the person of Jesus. Now, as we talk about often, we live in a part of the country that is very Christianized, 
Um, and that may be changing some as our country is increasingly becoming post-Christian. But it's far slower here than in other parts of the country. But, but here's the thing. There's a big difference between going to church and participating in religious things or identifying with Jesus and actually sitting at his feet so as to learn him. Don't miss that. Let me, let me just say that again. There's a big difference between going to church, participating in religious events, or even identifying yourself or associating yourself with Jesus and actually sitting at his feet so as to learn him. There is a way that you can claim Jesus and do religious things, but still avoid true obedience to him and still, in a sense, keep him at arm's length. In both of the passages I read involving Mary and Martha, the picture is this. Both women believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Mary, however, has embraced a level of abandonment to Christ that Martha has not yet seemed to find. It's not just that these women have different personality types, but rather the gospel writers are painting Mary as being at like this next level of devotion to Christ. Martha feels constrained by her tasks and her responsibilities. She is perhaps more loyal to her to-do list um, or what she thinks people expect of her. As Jesus says, she is anxious and troubled about many things, and this anxiety is preventing her from simply being at his feet. Both sisters believe he's the Messiah, the, the creator of everything. But when he walks into the room, one falls at his feet and the other needs to go get dinner ready. Which one are you? If I'm being honest this morning, I'm afraid I'm more of a Martha than a Mary. Here's our first principle today. We need to live as if Jesus is in the room. We need to live as if Jesus is in the room because he is. God is omnipresent. God's spirit lives inside of you if you're a believer. Scripture says you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But how much spiritual activity is actually going on inside of your temple? Inside of you. Or is your temple devoted more to maintaining and perpetuating your sense of identity as an individual? Do you get that that's the dilemma for Martha here? Like, I, I, I want to sit at Jesus' feet, but I'm probably the older sister, which means I'm the hostess in this situation, and I can't abandon myself to Christ because all these people are in my home, and I'm expected to pop out of the kitchen with hors d'oeuvres. It seems like she's concerned about her guests, right? It seems like it's, a, it's an others-focused point of view, but in reality, it's a form of self-focus. And she's so self-focused that she's mad at her sister for sitting at Jesus' feet. Why? Because she should be helping me. Isn't it amazing how even in the presence of Christ, everything can still be about me? 
We need to live as if Jesus is in the room, which is largely about abandoning the maintenance of our unique identities so that we might be freed up to apprentice ourselves to him, to sit at his feet. Jesus called this abiding in the vine, resting in him, remaining in him. The ancient monks called this practicing the presence of Christ. Literally going through the day mentally, emotionally, in a state of connectedness to him. Not allowing ourselves to become distracted and carried away by other work or emotions to the point where we've forgotten about him entirely. We call it Christianity being a way of life. Or Jesus being the orienting center of our life. That's language we use. No matter how you put it, it isn't an addition to your life. Or to use Martha's example, it isn't something you do in addition to playing hostess. It is something you do instead. Here's the second principle. We need to wean ourselves off of this world. We need to wean ourselves off of this world. The ancient Christians, particularly the monks and the mystics, fully believed this notion that following Jesus couldn't simply be an addition to an already full life, but rather following Jesus had to become one's life. But the problem there is that we are functionally addicted to the things of the world. Yes, material things, comfort, money, etc. But, but also things like what Scripture calls the fear of man. Or what we would call the need for approval. Or what we would call being a people pleaser. Isn't it funny how Scripture frames that in the context of fear? I'm afraid of other people and what other people think of me. And so I've actually adapted myself to live in such a way where I am seeking their approval or seeking to make sure that they are happy with me. Because really what's at the root of that is fear. If your greatest fear is that other people would be disappointed with you, with you or reject you or abandon you, then truly following Jesus is always going to take a back seat because you are completely missing the truth that you have been perfectly seen, known, accepted, and loved in Christ and that no human person could see you or know you or accept you or love you as well as Jesus. Jesus has. We especially are inclined to make the mistake of trying to find those things in a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend. If you're expecting this from your significant other, you will always be disappointed and you are putting a ridiculous burden on them by asking them to be God for you. Many ancient Christians believed that the first stage of apprenticeship to Christ was a stage they called purgation, in which with God's help, I begin to purge the things of the world that have a hold on me. I think of this as like the rehab stage. Like we need this period of detox, why does a person go to rehab? So that they can be physically separated from the things that they're addicted to so as to get free of dependency. Right? I need to purge this from my system. Some of you have done uh, Whole30, right? 
You don't eat sugar for a month. What's interesting is that when you don't eat sugar for a month, you find yourself saying things like, oh, these carrots are so sweet, (laughs) right? Things you've never thought before, right? Because their sweetness has been completely overshadowed by your devotion to refined sugar, right? It's been clouded by all of that. But once it's out of the system, suddenly what was bland to me before, uninteresting to me before, suddenly there's this world of color, there's this world of flavor that I didn't really know existed there. So how do we do this in a spiritual sense? Well, listen, time is a big factor here. You cannot pencil this in, as we've been saying. This is a devotional practice. And by devotional, I don't just mean like reading a devotional. I I mean in the sense of like loyalty. Like I am devoted to Christ. And so the practice of my life is in that devotion to him. You, in a sense, have to stop working in the kitchen so that you can be at Jesus' feet. If you are unwilling to make space to be with him in prayer or meditation or fasting or Bible reading or Sabbath, then that's the first hurdle we have to get past. What is the source of your unwillingness there? Why are you not consistently choosing the good portion? I love how some translations render that the good part. Like this, this, this sitting at Jesus' feet thing, this is the good part. It's not the other stuff that that you think is the good part of life. This is it. It's him. I could wake up an hour earlier in the morning and spend time with Jesus, but I love, you know, I love my sleep, right? Yeah, but but Jesus is in the room. Do you notice what Jesus said in response to Judas? When Judas is like, what is this? Why is she pouring this on your feet? Notice he said, I'm not always going to be here in the room. I could take my lunch break and spend time with him, but I've, you know, I've got errands to run. Yeah, but Jesus is in the room. I could, I could spend my drive to and from work and prayer and conversation with him, but I'm really wanting to finish uh, this true crime podcast, right? But Jesus is here, guys. We make dozens of micro decisions every day to not acknowledge his presence. And to just go about our own agenda. We've gotten really good at it. This can sound legalistic, I realize. But here's the thing. Here's the reality. We cannot serve two masters. If you want to take on the identity of Jesus, you have to sit at his feet. You have to apprentice yourself to him. In the purgative state... We have to incisively look at our lives and analyze the things that turn our gaze from Christ so that we might intentionally wean ourselves off of them. And it's incredibly hard. Like, none of this is easy, by the way. It's one of the reasons why I think the New Testament holds up the concepts of endurance and steadfastness as being like pivotal concepts in the Christian life as we pursue Christian maturity. St. John of the Cross calls the difficulty of this stage and this process the dark night of the soul. 
That when I, when I begin to systematically remove the things of this world that I'm addicted to, what naturally occurs is like a state of withdrawal, and it's normal in this state for me to feel abandoned by God. I've told this story before, but several years ago, I, uh, I went to a monastery for a silent retreat, something I'd always wanted to do. I thought it was going to be like this amazing, refreshing time, and I got 24 hours into it and was miserable. Like, they're, like I, I took this stack of books, and, but after, you know, like six hours of reading, I'm like, okay, you know, well, I guess I'll pray some more. Okay, I did that, and, and it was just like time was dragging and, like, I realized all of these things that I use to, like, occupy my attention and to, like, entertain myself, music, television, whatever else, like, those things were suddenly gone. Even, even just sitting and talking with another person, like, enjoying time with other people, that, that wasn't even there. Like, it, it was miserable. Like, it felt like this abandonment. And I, I felt like, man, I got to get out of here. But what I realize now is... To some extent, that is what the ancient Christians were pursuing. That, that is their counsel to us, is that we would literally pursue this state of being where I am satisfied with the presence of God alone. Right? That that brings me this sense of fullness and completion and wholeness. And that any of these other things that I'm looking to do not satisfy completely and are only like really pale facsimiles of the real thing. But in order to find this state of fullness in Christ, I have to like get rid of my dependency on this other stuff. It's incredibly hard. But the real intention here is not just simply that we would be emptied of those things, but that we would be filled specifically with agape, which is the Greek word for the self-sacrificing love of Christ. That as we purge the things of this world and our dependency on the things of this world, of this world from our life, that what we find is Jesus' self-sacrificial love. That once we have space in our life to actually sit at his feet and to be with him, what we discover anew and experience is this agape. And the more we experience his agape, the more we become people of agape. Suddenly, this idea of loving our neighbor as ourself isn't so abstract. When we are immersing ourselves and spending our time with the one who has perfectly modeled for us what it looks like to love your neighbors. Mary, in today's text, has experienced Jesus' love in the most incredible way. He, he just raised her brother from the dead. So what does she do? She takes what is possibly the most extravagant thing she has, and she pours it on his feet. She blesses him. She anoints him. She is overcome with his agape, and it leads her to be sacrificial. Suddenly, my expensive ointment isn't mine. Suddenly, at the feet of Jesus, I realize the things I thought were mine actually belong to him. Suddenly my home is his. Suddenly my money is his. Suddenly my children are his. My life is his. My identity is his. 
Now, to Judas, this looks like idiocy. He sees what's going on, and he's baffled. Foolishness. To those who don't sit at Jesus' feet, what the New Testament tells us is, yeah, this kind of devotion to Christ is going to look to people like pure foolishness. But those who know and experience his love, to them it makes total sense. Why wouldn't I give him more of me? Why wouldn't I devote all of the things of my life to him? Now, the resurrection of Lazarus has truly set in motion the things, the events that lead to Jesus' death. Right? It is this sort of uh, boulder that was at a tipping point, and now it's headed downhill. And we'll see that in the weeks to come. A large crowd begins to form in Bethany around the home of Mary and Martha. The Jews are plotting behind the scenes. They're thinking, man, we're going to have to kill Lazarus as well because Jesus has raised him from the dead. It's like ignited this fire. Jesus gets, gets sort of whisked by this crowd into the city of Jerusalem as they lay down palm fronds and declare, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But we have now entered into his final week. His time has now come, as we'll see next week. This whole time he's been going, it's not my time yet. 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 But then we get to chapter 12 and he goes, oh, it's my time now. As we go all the way to the crucifixion, which is the ultimate display of his agape. And the tide will turn quickly. Notice, though, the focus here at the end of our text is on Jesus' identity, as the focus has been throughout much of John's gospel. Who is this? Well, this is the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Who He is is all that matters. And the triumphal entry is yet another marker for who He actually is. You even see how it fulfilled prophecy there and how the disciples remembered kind of after the fact, like, oh, yeah. The irony of all this, though, is that the thing that so many of us want, which is to be seen by others, is the very thing that Jesus doesn't ultimately really get. He comes to his own people, and his own people don't receive him. Because just as crowds are screaming, Hosanna, very quickly, in just the span of a few days, the crowd suddenly are shouting, crucify him. But unlike us, Jesus doesn't need anybody to see him and validate his identity. Rather, he has graciously invited us to see him and to respond in faith and obedience. When you are the I am, what you or I think about him changes nothing about his actual identity. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the real question for us is this. If you see him as the Messiah, if that is what you say about him, why are you in the kitchen? May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and love. We thank you even for this quick scene of these two sisters. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us in our hearts and in our lives the ways in which 
perhaps we embody this Martha way of being. God, forgive us, forgive me of the times where I've been too busy for you, too caught up in maintaining my own um, persona or my own identity rather than seeking to truly take on your identity as my own. Forgive me for the times where I've tried to add you to my existence rather than making you my existence. Or the times when I have looked to find you and other people only to be left wanting. Lord, would you give us this morning an abiding desire to sit at your feet, a willingness to endure the hardship of weaning ourselves off of the things that distract us from the sweetness of you. Give us hearts that long to spend time with you, to be with you, to see you, and to become more like you.